So, just as a disclaimer, it's coming. Um, so there's no surprises about that, all right? Um, uh, the second is that, um, is that there's an un, uh, undeniable, uh, undeniable joy with being a part um, of, of being a part of a community of faith. God, we talk about, we, we sing um, that God has, or that we have set our hearts upon him. But, um, but I'm here to say this morning that God has set his love upon you. God has set his love upon you. Um, and that is something to celebrate. It's something to be in awe of, uh, indeed. Um, but something to celebrate. Uh, speaking of celebration, there's this kind of aura of joy in the building that has been missing over the past few weeks. Uh, and that aura of joy that's been missing that is now here this week goes by the name of Vinny. And we are... Amen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you got to be honest. Man. I say thank you just because I, th- I thought when I see you walking up front with the Bible, I'm like, well, guess I'm not preaching today. <laughs> mm. Oh, Vinny, we love you. I'm glad that you're uh, glad that you're well. Glad that you're here. You know, all kinds of uh, testimony of God's, uh, of God's healing in, in the room this morning. And uh, Vinny, is, uh, Vinny is one. We're grateful to see him. Uh, grateful to see Mary Jane as well. Um, just so, so thankful for what God is doing in our midst. Even when our bodies fail, right, um, the Lord sustains them. So, um, well, let's, uh, let's try and jump in here. We've uh, been on this series in Corinthians, first, the book of 1 Corinthians, and, and Pastor Corey preached to us last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I would uh, encourage you to take them out, 
open up to 1 Corinthians 9. There are some in your, uh, in your seats. If you don't have one, we'll have them, I think, up on the screen as well. If you've got a smartphone, you want to grab an app or look, up, look it up online, you can do that as well. However, you've got to get there. Um, you can. And um, I'm going to read, we're going to read the first 10, the first 10 verses here uh, to start, okay? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 10. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church that he helped start in the city of Corinth, and he says to them, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you, you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense of those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, is it only about ox that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. Now, um, if you take uh, if you take this these first ten verses, uh, it appears that Paul here, the Apostle Paul, is outlining kind of in uh, kind of in a rhetorical sense the reasons why why he and by extension. Barnabas, his partner, and the other apostles as well, have a right to receive financial support or to make, uh, to make their actual monetary or material living from their work in the gospel. He's, he's laying out this case that says, hey, look, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Aren't, aren't you, Corinthian church, don't, don't you stand as the, the premier example of my apostleship, of my, of my work, of, of, my, of my labor? Why should other people, why should, a, why should a farmer be able to eat of the harvest of his crop and benefit from it? But, but apostles, what, but, but somehow they're, they're separate from that, and they, and, they, and they shouldn't receive their living from the work that they put in 
to um, the spreading of the gospel, the planting of churches, the leading of the people. And so he's making this kind of rhetorical argument back and forth with the Corinthian people about, about why he has a right to receive his living from the work of the church. And then in verses 11 and 12, he kind of like dots the period at the end of the sentence of his argument. He says, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And so he like, he says it flat out. If we've sown spiritual seed, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Now, I know what you're saying. Like, well, <laughs> isn't it convenient that a pastor is preaching about how they should make their living from the ministry of the church? Convenient, yes, okay? Um, you're going to get no arguments from me on that. But, um, but I, I think that uh, reading this at just a real, like, surface level and taking this, all of chapter 9, and, and pulling it out of Paul's whole communication to the Corinthians um, can cause some confusion as to what exactly he's communicating here, all right? Because if we take the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we just read, uh, we may come uh, to this chapter and say that, that, that Paul is making the case that, that ministers of the gospel should be paid for their work. And in a real implicit way, obviously Paul is making that case, okay? He's saying, hey, look, um, I believe that, that apostles in the Lord have the right to receive uh, material pay for the spiritual work that they do in the life of the church. Paul wouldn't argue that. But while, while the truth stands, it's not the purpose, that's not the purpose that Paul sets out to write this, Okay? Is it, is it true, according to Scripture, that, that pastors should, apostles in this case, right, should um, have a right to receive uh, their, their living wage from the church? Paul would say, yes. But that's not why I'm writing that, Paul says. Don't, don't mistake the reasons that I'm writing. It's not primary issue for Paul. See, when we... When we talk about reading a passage of Scripture in context, what we mean is, is we can't just pluck out random verses or random sections of Scripture and kind of take them like a ball of Play-Doh and form them so they, they fit our own ideological or theological opinions. Like, oh, Paul says here that you all need to pay me. Right? See, if we don't read things within the context of their placement in all of Scripture, we can, we can really use Scripture as a weapon. And it can become abusive. And it can become hurtful. 
And instead of, and instead of um, like being the wind on people's back that drives them to Jesus, it can be the sword that scares them away from him. Okay? And so, so it's vitally important here that we, that we understand the whole breadth of what Paul is saying. You see, you can't read chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians without remembering and having an understanding of what Pastor Corey preached on last week in chapter 8. Okay? And everyone remembers that, right? Because it was so clear, so well done, right? You took copious notes, and you meditated and prayed on it all week. You've let that word take root in your heart, and so you're fully immersed in what 1 Corinthians 8 said last week, correct? Okay, raise your hand if we need a recap. Okay, we need a little recap. All right. So, uh, so, all right. Uh, Pastor Corey, Vinny, whoever. Let's, okay. Um, so we need a little bit of a recap of chapter 8 last week, all right? Now, if you, um, what chapter 8, uh, what did chapter 8 deal with? Well, the issue at hand was that, um, is that Paul was addressing this fear that new believers in Jesus Christ were having. And then he gave uh, 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 an exhortation to um, believers who um, had been following Jesus for a while, right, to give up some things that they felt that they were free to do by the grace of God in an effort to encourage the ongoing walk of faith of those who were just coming to Jesus. Now, what was the issue? Well, the issue in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 was that, there, um, that new believers in, in the city of Corinth were... Um, see, in ancient Roman context, especially in a city like Corinth, which was a, like a cosmopolitan city, had a lot of... Um, had a, the largest uh, pagan temple... In, um, in antiquity, what would happen is that these that that um, that Romans would bring sacrifices of food to these pagan temples, right? Sometimes this food would be meat, and they would slaughter the animal, and that they would they would lay it on the altar of this of this um, of this Roman god, and then later. When the temple ritual was over, right, the community would take the meat or take the food off of the altar and they would share it. They would eat it. They wouldn't let it, they wouldn't let it go to waste, right? Paul was, um, they were concerned about that. And people in Corinth who were just coming to faith in Jesus Christ, right, who were who were just understanding what it meant for Jesus to have lordship over their life, just understanding what it meant to, to give all of themselves, were kind of going through this moral dilemma about, man, is it really okay for me to eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Should we eat this food? We don't want it. 
We don't want it to ruin us. We don't want it to, we don't want it to defile us. We don't want it to be wrong in the sight of the Lord. Now, the issue was that um, those who had been walking with Jesus for a while, who had, who had grown in their understanding of God's grace upon their life, who had grown in their understanding, in the realization of, of the sovereignty of the God that they had served, they would take the meat off the altar and they would be like, you know what? Of course I can eat this meat. Because the God that it was sacrificed to is no God at all. Right? There is one God. There is, there is one God, one Lord, one Savior. He resides in heaven. His name is Jesus. And, and, and the freedom and the power that the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives to me doesn't make me afraid that somehow, because I put something in my mouth, that it's going to spiritually defile me. And Paul goes on to say that what you put into your mouth doesn't defile you, right? It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. It's the overflow of your, of your heart that shows that I am either defiled or that I am holy, right? But, um, but what was happening here is that, is that these, these very mature Christians were, were eating this food off of the altar like no one else was watching, right? Proclaiming that, well, we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom in Christ to do this. Our, our God is more powerful than any false, uh, fake or false gods that exist. So there's, that's no problem for us. Meanwhile, while all of these mature um, uh, b- believers were just like ravaging themselves on this food, there's little Timmy over here, right, who just gave his heart to Jesus Christ five days ago, and he's like shaking in his boots how all these mature believers, all these people that he looks up to, they're eating the meat of false gods. Like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Can I trust them? Can I follow them? Are they really Christian? Are they following Jesus? Am I really following Jesus? If they're doing something that I think is wrong, am I following the same Jesus? It was destroying their faith. It was throwing them into turmoil. It was causing all of these unnecessary questions in their mind. And so what did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, look, believers... Brothers and sisters who have been walking with Jesus, could you, for a hot second, stop doing the things that you think you have a freedom and a right to for the benefit of those who are just maturing in their faith? It is an act of love, Paul says, to willingly forego something that is perfectly fine for you in an effort to support and encourage those who are just maturing in their faith. You, believers, have a responsibility to say no to the things that are, yes, perfectly fine, but that may cause others to look upon your relationship with Jesus Christ and as a reflection, Jesus Christ himself, and call into question the commitments that they have made. And the base argument here, or the base thing that Paul is about to, is, is trying to say is, he says, look, it's not all about you. 
It's not all about you. That, that, the, that the demand and the urgency of the gospel, the spiritual condition of our brothers and sisters should always take precedent over our own sense of freedom. And so now we come to chapter 9. And if you don't read chapter 8 and understand the argument that Paul makes in chapter 8, you come to chapter 9 and you think, though, well, wow, Paul's a real jerk demanding all of these rights, you know? Oh, you're going to pay me because I'm an apostle and I deserve to earn my money. It is a what? Right that I have. What does Paul do in the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians 9? He sets the stage or makes the case for his own personal right. Paul's like, hey, look, I have a right to receive a living wage from my work in the gospel. There is no arguing that. It's written in the law, Paul says. It's a, it's a, it's a, a truth of agriculture, right? The farmer eats of his crops, right? The thresher threshes the grain, right? It's, it's, a, it's a principle that no one is going to deny. I have the right to receive my living from the gospel. It's my right. It's my right. It's my right. Just like the mature, the mature believers in 1 Corinthians 8 were saying, it's my right to eat this meat. I am free to eat this meat. It's my right to eat this meat. Paul is saying, right, okay, I have rights. I have a right as well. Let me lay out the case for my right. My right is to receive a living wage from the gospel. But what does, what does Paul do with that right that he establishes in the first 12 verses? He completely flips the whole argument on its head. Okay? Because he then says, the second half of verse 12 through verse 14. It says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Verse 15, look. But I have not used any of these rites. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me 
if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Chapter 9 is not this way in which Paul establishes an argument for his own apostleship so he can get paid. It's a way for him to provide a living testimony or example about how in, the, in light of the urgency of the gospel, in light of the immense task of bringing as many people to the cross of Jesus Christ as possible, that it is necessary for every man, woman, and child who expresses faith in Jesus Christ to regularly, regularly forego the things that are rights or freedom to them so that others may come. Without any obstacles, without any barriers, without any speed bumps even, Paul's going to say, okay, if you're not quite getting it from chapter 8, let me give you an example here in chapter 9. Let me, let me show you how it's supposed to work. It is, an, it is an act, listen, it is an act of self Restriction. We're not good at self-restriction. Man, Americans especially, we're all about rights. I have the right. I'm free to do this. And when you talk about the, when you talk about the spiritual principle the jesus principle right of restricting the things that you have a right to for the benefit of others it becomes well that's un-american we have all this Let's see you're a citizen of heaven first homie okay <laughs> It is an act of self-restriction in an effort to fully unbind the gospel from having a tainted experience in anyone's life. Paul willingly restricts a right that he has to receive compensation in order to ensure that every obstacle that could possibly be in the way between an unbeliever and the gospel is removed. Get it out, get it out of my way. No, could people call into question my motives if I'm receiving my, my, my material compensation from preaching the gospel? Could they call into question my motives? Yeah, probably. Okay, so uh, get that out of the way. I'm done with it. I will not have any obstacle in the way of, of 
of the gospel, of people receiving the gospel and, the, and their own brokenness. In verse 19, He says, though I am free. This is revolution. Listen, if you can get this, you got, a, you got a big nugget of truth, all right, to fit into your own life right here, okay? Though I am free, he says, and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Did you know that with God, the way up, is down. Did you know that that with God, um, that the, the freedom that is offered to you is sometimes an exhortation to submit yourself to slavery to win as many as possible? That that there are that there are periods of time in your life, that there, are, that there are specific instances or, or relationships where, where, your, where your freedom in Christ, the grace given to you by your relationship in Jesus Christ is not the, pri- is not the primary thing involved. In fact, the primary thing involved is, is God calling you to a place of self-restriction and humility so that you get out of the way as God brings the gospel to someone else. Now it's, it's easy to talk in theory about things like this. It's a much different thing to, um, to apply it practically. And there are undeniably dozens and dozens and dozens of examples that can be given personal experiences, circumstances in which I have a basic freedom. I am free to do something. Um, But that in light of my relationship with an unbelieving world or in light of my relationship with maybe someone who is struggling in a specific area or in light of my relationship with a with a new believer who is having a lot of questions about their faith, that I will, that, that we, we must self-restrict our own freedoms so as to not give them something to trip over on their way to the cross. Well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Give me, give me an example. All right? Uh, probably one of, like, the most, um, like, apt examples. All right? Is um, the issue of alcohol? Let's just use that as a case study. All right, the issue of alcohol. <clears throat> I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, right? Um, I uh, I'm a pastor, right? I have um, a strong desire to be holy, right? I want to be a a good example to my children, a a good leader to my wife. Um, I want to be a good pastor, right? So, if I, um, 
if I go out to dinner, right, or we have a dinner party, and, uh, and I want to have a beer, then what does the gospel or what does scripture have to say about that? Oh, I mean, we can get into a really long, drawn-out argument about this whole thing, right? But um, basically, and in general, right, it's okay if I have a beer. It It is okay if I have a drink. Um... That is, a, that is a freedom that I have, right? I have, I have freedom to have within the restrictions of drunkenness, right? A drink. Now, all of the things that you can do are not all of the things that you, you know this, right? Should do. Okay? Right? So, um... So well, I'm going to make an extreme example, okay, here, so that you, so you can draw kind of a comparison, draw an understanding. Say that as a pastor, um, someone comes to me and says, you know, pastor, um, I really like, I, I just come to receive Jesus, and my life is kind of in shambles, and I've really had, like, I've really had a drinking problem, and it's destroyed so many areas of my life, and I just can't, like, I can't seem to beat it, and just time and time and time again, it's just like, it's just eroding everything that is important to me, and would, can we just talk about it? Can you, can you help me through this? Sure, bro. Let's go down to the bar. We'll sit at the bar. Um, I'll get a beer. We'll get you a Pepsi, right? And we'll just hash this out. Right? We'll like... We'll, we'll get it done, right? Now, do I have the right, the freedom, by the letter of the law, to, do, to drink that beer? Of course I do, right? But just because I have the right does not mean it's right. In fact, in that case, right, Paul would say, you're absolutely wrong, and you're bordering at... At, at best, you're being irresponsible with someone else's soul. At worst, you're, willing that, you're willingly putting them in grave danger. So what does it mean to self-restrict in order to Right? Encourage the growth of the gospel in someone else. It means even when something is right, even when something is okay, I have to have enough wisdom to say, even though I have the right, even though Americans are so freaking in love with exercising their rights, right? That sometimes, lots of times, the, the, the Jesus thing to do, yes, the Jesus thing to do, and we'll get to that in a moment, is to lay aside everything that you have a right 
to, whether it's a drink or whether it's your opinion, okay? Lay aside the things that you have a right to in order to see the gospel, the seed that is planted in someone else, grow maybe just an inch more. Because it's not all about just the rights that I have. What does Paul go on to say? We're just continuing to follow along in our scripture here in 1 Corinthians 9, okay? How, how willing, how focused was Paul um, towards the urgency of the gospel in others' lives, all right? How, how, like, Paul was like, man, whatever it takes, I will give up every single right and freedom that I have if it means bringing more people to the gospel. I will, I will remove everything, every prerogative of my own if it means eliminating barriers, eliminating obstacles, if it gets more people to the foot of the cross of Jesus, then I will do it. And he goes on to say in, um, in verse 20, following, he was like, okay, to the Jews, I'll become like a Jew. I, I, I can talk the Jewish thing, Right? I'm an educated man in the law. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. I, I know the game. I am, I am educated. I will, I will speak the Jewish thing and walk the Jewish walk and immerse myself in the Jewish culture, right? I don't have to, but if it gets me to the point, right, of convincing one more person that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then I'll do it. To the Jews, I have become like a Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Although I myself am not under the law. All right, I will forego that right that I have to not be under the law, to enter into the life of someone else where I don't have to be, right? Where I don't have to live, where I don't normally live, but I'll go there if it means that I'm going to get an opportunity to bring someone out of it. 21, to those not having the law, I will become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. You get the picture here? To the weak, I became what? Weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all Possible means I might save some. Well, geez, Paul's kind of lukewarm, isn't he? He's kind of wishy-washy here. Why doesn't Paul just be himself and stand up for what he believes in? Because he's willing to let go the things that he believes in, a.k.a. his opinions. They're not so important to him. Saving some for the sake of the gospel is more important to Paul than saving face of his identity. 
He's willing to let go of the person that he should be or how he, the type of, what he should say and the opinions he should say. And well, I believe this and if you don't like it, then well, I'll be over here believing what I believe and you can be over there not believing what I believe, but, but you're wrong and I'm right. Yeah, because wh why is that dumb, right? Because it immediately drives a wedge between you, the face of Jesus Christ, to an unbelieving world and the person that's looking at you and be like, if that's Jesus, I don't want nothing to do with him. And so Paul says, so that by all possible means I may save some, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And then finally, as if it's like the final nail in the coffin that Paul is building, building this case for, for Christians to let go of individual rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel, he says, he makes this analogy that, that all of the Corinthian people would have understood, okay? So Corinth, it was a big city, and... Um, there was two main sporting events that happened in um, the ancient Roman world. Uh, the first and most important, the biggest, was what? You know this. It still happens today. The Olympics, right? The Olympics. Huge sporting event. Happened in Rome, okay? But the second largest sporting event in all of the known world at that time happened in Corinth called the Isthmian Games. And it was similar to, um, it was similar to the Olympics. Not quite as big, but very, very, very important. Very, very, very established. And so Paul was like, okay, in case you're not getting it, let me give you one more example, an, uh, uh, an example that you have to understand because you live in Corinth and everyone knows about um, games and running races and preparing for battle and everything like that. And he says, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. You know how hard you have to train? You know the things that you have to do to distinguish yourself in a race, in the actual, in the actual performance of a race? to distinguish yourself from the rest of the people who are merely just jogging, right? Man, you gotta work hard, right? You gotta, you gotta eat well, right? You gotta get your sleep. You gotta train consistently, right? You have to understand your body. You have to, maybe, maybe you're gonna study the, the, the race course so you know so you know when, when you're gonna when you're gonna do active rest while you're running or or what your pace is gonna be in the first five miles as opposed to the second five miles, right? You gotta put in the extra effort to distinguish yourself to win the prize. Paul says all runners run the race, but only one runs in such a way as to get the prize. Now, what's the prize for Paul? The prize is that I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that some may come to believe. That's the prize for Paul. 
The, Paul, the, the prize for Paul is that there, there are people who are going to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ because I chose to give up a freedom and a right that I have. And I am, I am willing to do that when not everyone else is. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown <laughs> that will not last. But we do it. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. We give up our rights. We give up our freedoms. We willingly self-restrict our opinions, our freedoms. We, we say no to that beer or whatever the case may be. We refuse, right, to interject or overpower another with the freedom or the right that we have. Because in so doing, when people, when people come to a cross um, that, is, that is without hindrance or without barrier, it produces a crown, a prize. And that, and that crown does not, does not fade away or, or spoil or rot or, or rust like a like the, like the crown would be if it was just given by the world. Oh, that Pastor Cameron, he's such a cool pastor. He has tattoos and he drank a beer with me. I'm still an alcoholic, but at least we had a beer together. Right? You know the crown that I get? I get the crown of just being a cool guy. And eventually that crown will fade away. It will spoil it will perish. It will be gone. But if I'm willing to give up a freedom, if I'm willing to give up a right, if I'm willing to establish in my own heart and mind that the state of someone else's soul is more important than my own personal freedoms or rights or prerogatives or opinions, I may, I just may, receive a crown that will never fade, that will never spoil, that will never perish. Therefore, verse 26, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Jesus Jesus gave up his right. In the, uh, <clears throat> in the open house that my wife and I uh, lead, we talked, um, we talked this past week out of the book of Ephesians. about um, the place and power of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ now, right? And in, uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, Paul writes um, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead 
chapter 1, verse 20 of Ephesians, which he exerted, which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If that's not enough, right? Uh, John chapter 13, before Jesus washes his disciples' feet and is arrested, crucified, that evening the meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from, come from God and was returning to God. How much power did Jesus have? All of it. How much authority did Jesus have? all of it. How much dominion over all of creation. It says in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 3, that Jesus was the agent of creation. That everything that was created was created by him and for him. There was no restrictions on the power or place of Jesus Christ. Yet he chose he chose to forego every divine and heavenly right that he had so that you might know the love of God. Love comes. The gospel comes. Grace comes. Salvation comes. When we willingly say no to the things that we have a right to so that others might come to know the incredible love of God. Don't ever underestimate the power of the choices and the decisions and the things that you do as an influence over the eternal trajectory of someone else's life. Make choices that you don't just have a right to, but that are right to 